Hello and welcome to the Sting and Fly podcast. Today's episode is the second in a two-part series. If you haven't listened to the first part, maybe go back and have a listen. I'm Thomas Morris, editor-at-large of the Sting and Fly. In September 2021, I asked four writers to write a short piece of fiction in a single night. That is, starting at dusk and submitting by dawn. We published the results in our winter issue. In the first part of this podcast, I spoke to three of those four writers, Marie Helen, Epitino, Rebecca Ivory, and Stephen Sexton. Today it's my pleasure to welcome a fourth of the gang, John McGregor, to read from his story and to discuss what happens when you try and write a story in a single night. John McGregor is the author of five novels and two story collections. His most recent novel is Lean Fall Stand. He is Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Nottingham, where he edits The Letters Pages, a literary journal in letters. Welcome, John. Hello, Thomas. Uh, Your first task is to read us the opening of your story. Dwell. I will do that with pleasure. We buried my father in the dry riverbed, with fires on the horizon and engines turning over in the deep velvet distance of the coming night. We'd been walking in the riverbed for hours, following its wend and weave while stooping low and taking turns to haul the trailer behind us. We no longer knew if there was anyone to be stooping out of sight from, but we were taking no chances. Clark said I should stick my head up and see, and when I told him he should stick his head up his ass and see that, my father told us to, for God's sake, stop fighting and focus. His voice was very quiet by then. I had to lower my ear to his mouth and ask him to repeat what he said. There was a huge effort in him drawing enough breath to speak. I watched the jerk and heave of his chest. I told Clark my father had said to knock off being such a prick, and all three of us were quiet for a while. The river wasn't totally dry. There was a muddy trickle running down the middle, and in some places slick patches of shallow mud. There was a faint reek of dead fish and a kind of seaweed tang. I didn't know how far we were from the coast or what the plan might be when we got there. The roar of the fires in the town and the ash falling from the sky and the occasional passing truck along the road made it difficult to think. My father on the trailer was heavy and the going was slow. Each time we hit a rock or rut, he would wince and cry out. We had to give him a handkerchief to bite on to stifle his cries. I don't think I can get there, he said, before taking the handkerchief. I think we need a different plan. I don't know what to suggest. I looked at him. He didn't say, leave me here. He didn't say, you go on without me, save yourselves. He said, it really bloody hurts, can you watch the bumps? He said, Sean, why did you have to go and open the door? He said, slowly, is it still bleeding? Clark, I said. Clark, check the dressing. Should we change the dressing? Is it tight enough? Have we staunched the bleeding? Clark said, staunched? The fuck you mean staunched? You check it, I'm not a doctor. I said, Clark, please, just help me out here. How's it looking? Clark muttered something, cleaned his hands with a wet wipe from the go bag and started picking at the soaked layers of the dressing. My father looked at me as the layers were pulled back. There were sticky sounds of unpeeling, and with each rasp, my father pinched his lips together and closed his eyes. Clark was swearing under his breath, and then he went very quiet. My father's eyes widened suddenly and lost focus. I couldn't remember when I'd last looked at him like this. For the the last few months, we'd been living in very close proximity, but our communication had been functional and terse. Pass me this. Have you got that? Watch the street. Your turn to sleep. Check the firing pin. And before this all started, we'd had no particular need to talk at all. I would no more have sat face to face with him than I would have sat face to face with the clock. His skin was smoother than I'd come to imagine. He had the wrinkles of his age, but between them the skin was smooth. It looked soft, although I didn't touch it. There was a flush in his cheeks that looked almost youthful. I'd never thought of him as a man who would moisturise. It was difficult to imagine he'd been finding the time. He came back into focus and looked at me deeply. He nodded. I didn't know what he meant. It could have meant anything. Clark finished redoing the dressing, and my father's whole body jerked as he pulled the last layer tight. He stood up, and as he did so, he leaned towards me and muttered, He's fucking fucked, mate. 
My father nodded at me again, and with a faint smile, he said, Sean, why did you have to go and open the door? Thank you, John. You're welcome. Why did you have to go open the door? That, that feels like <laughs> possibly a question my writers ask themselves when they're into a story. Why did I have to go and open the door? Why did I have to go and <laughs> do this? Um, you say in your reflection to this story um, that it was a terrible idea, this task. Um, and yet you go on to say that you love working this way. Can you <laughs> tell me a little bit about that initial response, that, that feeling it was a terrible idea? And what was on your mind when you received this prompt and this task? And Yeah. That? So, I, I mean, I had both of those thoughts in very, very quick succession. When, when I opened your email, I, I thought, yeah, that's, that's stupid. And I immediately thought... <laughs> And that's a really good reason to, to do it. Um, and I thought it was stupid because um, everything I've ever said about writing or taught about writing has been an attempt to kind of undo that myth of the writer that stays up late at night with a bottle of whiskey writing the story in one you know, <laughs> rush of creative energy, um, you know, which is what you always mm. see in in the movies and it has, has never previously been my experience. And I think it's quite a, it's quite a destructive myth because people, when people start to try writing, it's, it's one of the approaches they, they try and it generally doesn't work. Um, I, I can remember when I was younger than I am now and, kind of first out of university and my first time with a proper full-time job thinking I could sit up late in the evenings and write my, my, my first novel and you know, completely failing because I, I was tired and I wasn't very good at writing and I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and, you know, and, and, and actually, you know, as we know, and as, as many, many people have said, writing generally comes from, revision and accumulation and, and and slow, careful kind of developing of ideas. And, you know, there's something quite macho about that that whole concept of the the late night rush of inspiration. Um that I've always mm. pulled away from and always steered um you know my students and, and anyone who's interested steered people away from that. Um so that was why I thought it was a terrible idea. And then, yeah, immediately after thinking that, I thought, okay, but one thing I have learned over the years is that I get benefit from mixing up my approaches to writing. You know, as soon as I get really comfortable with one way of working, the writing gets slower and worse. And what I've found over the years is mm. if I kind of reinvent what I'm doing, even, you know, Mm. what room I'm in or what time of day I'm writing or what starting points I'm using, you know, whatever it is, just do something different that often helps. And I thought, yeah, this, this could be, this could be fun and, and it could be really difficult and it could, could go horribly wrong. But I, I think what attracted me about the idea and the way you set it up and the fact that it was definitely going to get published and published soon I thought, okay, well, if it if it goes really badly, then I've got an excuse. And my excuse is, I, t I told you this was a terrible idea. Here's a terrible piece of writing. And, and, and it's kind of, <laughs> it's not my fault. Um, yeah. But also, you know, because generally publishing takes such a long time, the thought that I was going to sit down and write a story and you were going to whisk it out of my hands and, and print it was was really exciting. And 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 was the key thing that I mean we won't come on to this, but it was the key mm. thing that made the difference. I've, I've tried a few times since we did this to kind of set something similar up for myself, and because there isn't that same real world urgency that it's going to get whisked out of my hands and printed, it, it hasn't gone yeah. as well. Wow. Yeah, I think about that in terms of the deadlines that. 
a deadline for me has to be a real deadline. If I give myself a deadline, then, well, I clearly don't respect myself. In <laughs> 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 need of a force of some external reality to back it up in some way. Yeah, and it has to be a real reality, doesn't it? it it's, I mean, I'm sure anyone who works in journalism listening to this is is kind of laughing at us because that's what journalism is. You know, you get you get an editor saying, "I want 800 words on this by like tea time." You know, and, and I think I've, twice I've written stuff for for a newspaper and had that experience of you know somebody phoning up in the morning said could you write us a piece on this? And and that, again, is kind of terrifying and exhilarating and, and yeah. it's it makes you wonder what, you, what you're doing the rest of the time when you're writing so slowly. Well, it's funny that you mentioned journalism there because one of the, um, one of the things I had in mind to kind of understand this task when I set it was... One of my favorite short stories uh, is by Clarice Lispector. It's called A Chicken. And I would wager to say it's the best short story about a chicken I've, I've ever read. Um, and it's, only, it's, it's four or five pages. And after I, after I read it, I wanted to know kind of where it came from. And I saw that Clarice Lispector had a column for the paper in Brazil. And... She was half an hour up until the deadline and she didn't have something. <laughs> so she started writing this anecdote <laughs> from her childhood about a chicken. And she wrote the whole story in half an hour. Wow. And I was like, wow. And, you know, as you say at the start, that thing of revision, um, I revise so much, I talk about revision so much. With a sting and fly, we, you know, we're often making writers go through four or five drafts. Um, and so just to... <laughs> To read something which I loved, and then discover it being written in half an hour, I thought, "Well, there may, you know, there may be something else going on here. There may be something in this." Um, so, like, what was your expectation for the story? I suppose, like, you said there that if it turned out bad, then you'd have an excuse. But did you have a sense of how it might turn out? I mean, to say you didn't know what the prompt would be, you didn't even know what form it would take. So there was a lot of kind of not knowing involved in this. Yeah. I, I just mean, wonder what you found. Might not know. And, and yeah, not only did I not know what form the prompt was going to take, I don't think I really understood what you meant by prompt. I don't think I've ever used a prompt before <laughs> or given prompts to anyone else before. It's just, yeah. It was completely alien to me. <laughs> um, and I liked, I definitely liked the fact I didn't know what form it was going to take. I hadn't even at that point been doing very much writing. I, you know, I've been kind of tied up with you know, revising my last novel and publishing my last novel, and and it was the summer, and I was just kind of beginning to sit down and start thinking about doing some new new work, and so I was kind of out of practice with writing anyway. And yeah, I had no had no preconceptions at all. I didn't think, okay, well here's half an idea I've got or here's a character I've got and I'll just try and make the prompt fit into this. Mm. Um, I didn't kind of have a stack of notebooks to hand or well, I'm going to flip back and find some more material I can, I can use. I just, mm. yeah, I think I was just really excited by the idea of, I suspect like you kind of being quite, once you come up with a concept like this, you've got to stick to it to the absolute letter. Um, so I, I, and the only planning I did I mean, I made sure that I picked a date when it was going to be all right to stay up all night and there were no kind of domestic responsibilities the next next day. And I decided yeah. I was going to drink coffee late at night for the first time in years and I got some big paper and I was just kind of ready. And I was ready at seven o'clock. And um, as I've heard in part one of this podcast, uh, you deliberately kept us waiting for six minutes. Which, was, which I thought was spiteful, but also did generate that that energy that you were claiming to to be. You were just late, weren't you? I mean, was it really? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> just really wanted to build that anticipation. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So six minutes past seven, you receive the email from us, and it says 
we want you to write a piece of fiction, 2,500 words approximately, that include at least four of these five words, bed, buried, velvet, river, father. Then what happened? Yeah, so I looked at that and I thought, okay, that that's too easy. Like four out of the five, that's, that's a cop-out. I'm definitely going to use all five. And five <laughs> words spread through a two and a half thousand word story like that you know it's it's almost i just i thought well you know you might as well say make sure you use a couple of commas and a semicolon like it, it didn't it felt inadequate <laughs> it felt inadequate to me as like i wanted my choices to be narrowed down and that didn't feel like that was narrowing down my, my choices mm. so i thought okay well i'm, I'm going to put all five words in the first sentence and that is going to narrow my choices down and and literally, like wow. while the kettle was boiling to make that first pot of coffee, I just was thinking, okay, yeah, father, river, buried, uh, uh, and then and that first sentence just kind of built itself, really. And 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 then from that first sentence, I just I immediately had an image of, you know, it just mm. felt kind of vaguely apocalyptic, vaguely. Kind of American Midwest kind of cowboy kind of territory, mm. you know, which which is not quite where it ends up. But that's that was the initial that that idea of the dry riverbed, mm. and and it's just okay. I, this doesn't feel like one of my stories, but that's exciting. And I don't know who these people are, why the, why they're burying this guy, but okay, let's just and then and then oh, yeah, it was just just a lot of fun because I just kind of went line by line I, okay what what makes sense to follow that mm. sentence um what makes sense for you know and and didn't try and stop and work out what the background story was what was going on and i think you know and then and then when, when, when you write like that you kind of every now and then you get to little moments where you give yourself a new chunk of story so um you know i knew that we were going to see them first when when the father was in the process of dying. Um, and then, yeah, so that's, so that's, that's, that's when he, when he says, um, you know, my father didn't say you go on without me. He did say, why did you have to go and open the door? Like there was no thought process behind that. I just, that was the next line that came mm. out and then, okay, okay, well there's the story of how come he's, he's wounded. So that's where we're going to go next. And, and that gave me something to to kind of come onto, and and so and and I think I said to you before, like the, this one of the I'm a, I'm a big believer in kind of process and and form dictating what happens with the writing. So so for this, I was using big sheets of A3 yeah. paper and um, and just writing all the way across. And by the time I finished a page, that was about 750 words. And it was also the end of a of a passage, and it and it just and it, that took me about an hour or so, mm. and it just that was a really nice way of dividing up the process. Like it took me an hour. There's time for a break. We've come to the end of a passage. There's a little, uh, you know, bit of white space. I need to work out where mm. to come to, so I could off I went, paced around the room, sat back down. Okay, now we're going to find out what he's talking about when he says, "Why did you have to go and open the door?" But it was, it was, yeah. There was very little planning at, at all, really. And it was only really, I think I got about three quarters of the way through and kind of ground to a halt. And I, I got to the point where I thought, okay, I need to understand where this is going to end, and I don't understand where it's going to end. Mm. And so at that point, I stopped and and typed it up. And it was about one in the morning by then, mm. so I just oh, this is stupid. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> So I went to bed and set the alarm for five. <laughs> and um, and then when I got up at five, it was just all about trying to find the ending. Um, so by that point, there was quite a lot more kind of going back, reading through, tweaking bits and pieces, um, trying to kind of... Um, what was that sleep like? <laughs> not great, to be honest. It was, yeah I, yeah. I mean, you know, when you set an alarm really early, you're kind of... 
on edge anyway. I, I, you know, I always kind of wake up about mm. an hour before the alarm's due to go off. Um, yeah. yeah, I just had, I was kind of half awake, I think, for most of the time, trying to think through bits of dialogue and just and just that whole question of like, what 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 is an ending for? Like, what does an ending do? Like, what what, what constitutes an ending in a short story? You know, it's it's such a key question at the best of times, mm. and this was not really the best of times. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but I think I think I needed that. I needed, you know, if you, if the deadline had been, had been midnight, then this would have been a very different story. I think I needed that that pause to digest what I'd written so far and to work mm. out how to kind of bring it back around to a, to some kind of an ending. So how did the process of this story compare to other stories you've written? Um, and I'm conscious when I ask that, that you say you do mix up your process, so there may not be one way you write stories ordinarily, but would you tend to begin writing by hand? Would you take a long time to write a story? I mean, what is a long time? But, you know, yeah. Um, this has reminded me that I generally do write. I'm hesitating to say better. I'm going to say more satisfactorily <laughs> um, by hand than, than straight onto mm. the screen. Um and I keep kind of having to remind myself about that because it's kind of quicker and more efficient to, to write straight on the screen. But I, I, yeah, I know. I keep reminding myself that my thought process is different when I'm writing on paper. Um, what does yeah. that mean? I, 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 I don't know. Um, I mean, okay. When the laptop is open, the world of distractions <laughs> is available. No matter how much internet blocking software you install, it's just. There's a lot of other mm. stuff sitting on your laptop waiting for you. So there is that. But I think even if I had a, a separate laptop that only had Word on it, there's something something about the screen, something about the uh, the kind of transience of when you type onto a screen, you know, it, it's kind of just floating there and you can delete it really easily and you can cut and yeah. paste and jumble stuff around really easily. I think from, you know, I mean, for me, when I'm writing on paper, I, it stays on the paper and I kind of, and I, I'm more inclined to keep moving yeah. and to keep moving forwards. Um, and I, yeah. I can look at what I've done and have ideas about what I'm going to do next, but, but not immediately kind of cut it and paste it. You know, it, it just, it just, I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a different headspace. It's the same way. And again, this might just be because I'm of a different generation, but I, I prefer reading a book to reading a long article on, on the screen. You know, it, I have a limit for yeah. how long, how long a piece of writing I can read on the screen. Um, and I find my attention drifting sooner. When, when you talk about the, um, kind of the physical reality of the page. I and mean, when you fill up the page, you put it aside, made yourself a coffee, and then that was kind of the end of the scene in some way. With word processors, there's a sense of like an endless scroll, even mm-hmm. though you do see, well, depending on what software you use, you do see the page. It's just very easy just to go on to the next page. Mm-hmm. And the cursor will go onto the next page if you keep typing. You don't have to move it there. And so it doesn't have the same, it's a different physical relationship that one has with the writing when it's on screen versus on the page. And I just wonder what the effect of that is. Because it's funny, you said it's a different thought process. And at the very beginning, you said that you weren't thinking when when you were writing. And I just wonder then, are you, (laughs) does being at a computer make you think more in some way as well? Is it more self-conscious? And well, I'll change that, I'll move that around, I can cut that, I can click undo. Whereas that sense of just moving forward, does it allow for more instinct perhaps? Or am I pushing you towards words that? No, I think think that makes sense. I'm just thinking about stories I'm working on at the moment. When... 
So one mistake that I, I often make is I'll write about half of the story in a notebook and then I get a little bit stuck and I think, okay, well, uh, while I'm waiting, I should type this up. And then I type it up and then I think, oh, well, since it's typed up, I'll carry on, I'll finish it on, on the screen. And, and once I make yeah. that move, that's when I start ending up with three or four different documents that are slightly different versions yeah. of the same story and oh, well, I'm going to start trying to write it this way and I'm going to move this bit like here. And then, and then before I know what I'm doing, I've got a folder that is six different versions of the same yeah. story. Whereas <laughs> if I'd stayed in the notebook, I I would have got to the end before I started dicking yeah. about. And <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that's, that, that, okay, so that's what it is. <laughs> to use te- a technical term, that it's much easier to dick about on on the laptop. Than, than it is in the notebook. And and I think I'm pretty sure it's more helpful to get to the end of the story before you start revising it, which I think undermines mm. what I said about five minutes ago about how I wrote this story. You know, that I did, I got about two thirds of the way through, then I moved on to the, to the screen. Um, but I guess because of the, the time urgency, I was just really focused on yeah. this needs an ending. How am I going to end it? Yeah, this earlier stuff is 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 done now. Um, that makes sense to me because there's when you've got like the endless time of you're just writing a story for sake of writing a story. If someone hasn't asked for that story, there's no deadline. Then yeah, you can just keep revising it. You can keep turning it around. You can keep filling that folder with other versions of it. Because in this instance, you were you had to send us something by 7 a.m. <laughs> so you had to keep moving forward in a way. Yeah, and I think I was interested, you, you were talking about um, that kind of dead end of, of endless revision. And I think, mm. I, I mean, I, I really value revision and the revision process and and, mm. and I think it can make a piece of writing much stronger and clearer. When it when it becomes problematic, I think is when you start that process before you've actually finished a version of the story. You know, and yeah. and, and, and I think because the story kind of loses its energy. You know, the, you you start off with an initial mm. idea and a, and a world and a set of characters, and you kind of you launch into it, and off you go, and it's all exciting, and then you if you kind of second guess and rethink and rework that before you've got to some kind of an ending. When I've done that in the past has been when I've been least likely to ever finish that particular story. Mm. (laughs) I'm really struck here by how much the idea of an ending is coming up and how much that is informing the story in some way. And you were saying when you were approaching the ending of this, you were wondering what the ending should be and what an ending should should be for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have a sense of, of what you're looking for in an ending of a story in general? And when when does the ending arrive for you? In the writing or as in when you write for the very ending or halfway through does an ending emerge for you? I don't, I don't know. I mean... When I'm reading stories, I'm always disappointed by a story that just kind of that just stops and kind of almost yeah. kind of relies on half a page of white space to lend some kind of uh, you know epiphany or pathos or you know hmm is it kind of like mm. a gap does not do <laughs> do that job really um, and I think. You know, we can blame twentieth century American white male fiction for a lot of things, and and one of the things we can blame it for is is that kind of slice of life notion of the story, where you can just start randomly and stop randomly, and that achieves its own pathos or meaning just by the fact that it stopped. And I, mm. I always find that a bit disappointing, and 
I'm much more interested in stories where by the time you get to the ending, the stories become something different to what you thought it was going to be. Um, and mm-hmm. there's, that, there's that great um, George Saunders essay about um, Donald Bartlemy story where he, he kind of compares yeah. the ending of a story to a, a punchline in, in a joke. Um, yeah. Not that an ending of a story should be funny, but but that it has the same requirements as a, as a punchline. You know, it, it, something needs to happen mm. in that ending of the story that, that I guess, rewards the reader's attention, you know, and, and surprises the reader in some way or, or, yeah, or just becomes something becomes something more like cranks up a gear or accentuates mm. some detail or, or, you know, does something that allows you to take something away from the story rather than, well, rather than not. Yeah. He talks on an essay about um, like Einstein's idea that a solution to a problem exists on a separate plane to the problem. In some way, mm. an ending you're going up another level in some way. He also has a great quote, I think, about like ending is stopping without sucking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. was like, oh, that's great. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, how do I make this not suck? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> that idea of, yeah, this doesn't feel like a slice of life story. Well, it's a slice of something. And, and you said at the start, that the it's kind of post-apocalyptic idea just emerged from the first sentence. And it struck me that this is, one could argue, as in like, this is a genre story in some way. And I wonder, did you feel, <laughs> at what point did you think, oh, I'm writing a post-apocalyptic story, so maybe this will have a different different terms or different rules for a story that John McGregor would ordinarily write? Or did you think it's going to be a John McGregor genre story? Yeah, I, I don't think and I thought... it's a genre story. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't think I thought no. any of those things. I think um, mm. within the first few sentences, I realised, oh, okay, I'm in some some kind of other moment in history. You know, this is this is this is something else. This is not mm. here now. This is somewhere else. Okay, yeah, it's kind of post something, post apocalyptic, post somewhere, post Cormac McCarthy. Um, <laughs> and and I, and I did have a moment of thinking, yeah, that's I don't do that. That's not that's not what I do. And and <laughs> and, and you know, there's that there's that kind of anxiety about genre that that it can limit your options or it can kind of kind of box you in with, with kind of the rules of the genre. Um, mm. I think I just thought, well, I don't care. I just, this, this is what's happening now. This yeah. is where I am. Um, <laughs> and, you know, what I found quite exciting about genre fiction is it's, it's a whole extra layer of, of imaginative play. You know, it's like, I mean, I mean, the central question of any story like this is, oh yeah, imagine if X happened, how would I react? What, you know, what, what would, what would be the, what would the outcome be in my street, in my neighborhood? You know, what would the world look like? How would, how would it get through that experience? How would you talk about it? How would, you know, how long would it take you to learn how to shoot a gun or, got a fish or you know whatever whatever it happens to be um but i think beyond that i wasn't really thinking about genre um i mean it was interesting i i, I showed the story to a few people afterwards and and including my editor and he was saying oh is, is there more where this came from is this part of something bigger yeah uh, <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> um <laughs> But one thing it did occur to me thinking about that was, well, you know, if I did turn this into a novel, then suddenly all those questions about genre and form kind of get more significant. And 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 you think, mm-hmm. oh well, now John McGregor is publishing a genre novel, and and he doesn't even understand the post-apocalyptic genre, and he hasn't read 
all of the people that you should have read if you're going to dare to write in another. I don't know. It, yeah. it just it, that, that made me nervous in a way that <laughs> writing a story in this form doesn't make me nervous. I mean, the, the thing I love about stories mm. is, um, and I'm going to circle right back to what was your original question about an hour ago. Um, what I love about short stories is, for me, they always have that sense of, of play and of, of, mm. and of extended possibility. And, you know, just the idea, you start writing a story and it could be 300 words, it could be 3,000 or 30,000, you know. Mm. You can do what you want. And, and I find that really exciting in a way that I don't quite ever find setting out to write a novel exciting. You know, that's, that's a different kind of level of <laughs> responsibility in a way. It's a, it's a commitment. Um, mm. And you asked ages ago my, about my normal practice for writing stories. And, you know, the last time I wrote a lot mm. of short stories was with my collection in uh, 2012. And I remember when I was working on that book, it suddenly, you know, I'd written kind of five or six quite traditional 6,000 word realist stories. And I suddenly thought, oh, if I'm publishing a book of stories, I, this is my chance to do whatever the hell I want. And so I just kind of got really carried away with just kind of <laughs> sitting, sitting down and going, okay, today I'm going to write a story in this voice. Today I'm going to write a story about um, yeah. chickens. You know, today I'm going to write a story that is all written in the form of footnotes. You know, it just playing. Um, and yeah. I remember finding that really liberating. And it was that connection which made me think you'd perhaps say yes to this commission. <laughs> I remember reading those stories and thinking this is a, an author who is, is testing himself in some way, is interested in an idea of an experiment, um, and that the stories felt different to one another. Um, I just felt it might be an openness towards this, so... It's, uh, you also wrote the, um, after Red 13, you wrote those stories for radio, which became a co- collection as well. So when you wrote those stories, can you talk us a little bit about that and that idea of you were commissioned to write a story every... Yeah, like every so... Month, so about... Okay, so the Reservoir Tapes, um, which is yeah. still available, Um was yeah, I was commissioned by Radio Four, and so that was interesting. That was a good experience of writing to deadline, um, a kind of terrifying experience of writing to deadline. Um, the the invitation to pitch for this commission came right at the end of the editing process with with Reservoir Thirteen, and they wanted fifteen short stories that were that would stand alone but would be part of a kind of bigger story universe. Um, Mm. And, you know, I had binders and binders full of characters and stories and um, unfinished business with Reservoir 13. So I I thought, okay, yeah, that that is something I can do. And And I pitched for that and got the commission. And then I think... I mean, in contrast to this, it, it sounds fairly chilled, but I think it was maybe a year, a bit less than a year, that I had to write 15 short stories. Because um, it, it was Radio 4, you know, they had to be pretty much exactly 2,000 words each. Um, wow. And that, was, that, was, that felt like a really short deadline. And, you know, it was much quicker than I've written a book yeah. before. And there was all sorts of... It was quite fun to work on because it, there were all sorts of challenges um, around the form. You know, I I, I got a book deal um, off the back of the commission, so I, I knew the stories had to work on radio and on the page, which are you know, two very different mediums. Mm. Um, yeah. The stories had to relate to Reservoir 13 because they were the same characters, or so I kind of had to, to stay true to that world but it had to not undermine anything in the novel. You know, it had to, it had to right. make those connections work. But by the time I was writing the stories, 
as well. Thirteen had gone to print, so I couldn't change anything to make it to make it fit. Um, but the thing, yeah. the thing that really kind of haunted me while working on those stories was the idea that. So I knew these stories were going to go out on a Sunday night, um, probably after the Archers or something, um, and that most people who heard <laughs> most people who heard the first line were not going to have been expecting to hear a short story in the radio like I, d- I didn't expect many people were going to kind of yeah. see it in the radio times and make a point of tuning in people were going to stumble across it by accident yeah <laughs> and you know when i stumble across some fictional drama on radio 4 i usually turn it off because i wasn't ready for it i'm not, <laughs> not in the mood for it and it takes quite a lot to, to for me to keep it on and so i had this image in my head of somebody yeah. like reaching for the dial to turn it off and I had to give them something in that first line that would hold them back from turning it off. Wow. And I then had to kind of keep doing that for the whole 15 minutes to kind of, which is not, you know, I'd never thought about that before in my writing. I, you know, that's not my primary interest, yeah. <laughs> keeping people engaged. Um, yeah. It should be. It should be a, a, a primary interest. Um so that was that. That was really different. That was a really different approach to writing stories. It was just that idea that you've got to keep people's attention. Yeah, and and you were writing within the confines as well. Of you had the limit there. You had the restriction of two thousand words. So that you kind of, at, at least they, I feel sometimes that some restrictions can be very useful because they it gives you the walls in a way and you go, right, well, I know I have to do something within here. Mm-hmm. So you rules out other possibilities in a way. You're like, well, I, I'm not going to follow that branch all the way westwards because I know I won't be able to, to get the story back inside the walls mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was, so that was interesting with this, you, you know, you said that this story had to be two and a half thousand words. And I realized about two thirds of the way through mm-hmm. that my story was going to be, quite a bit longer we ended up at three and a half thousand and i think i think i'm glad i mean you'd said vaguely that you weren't too concerned about the word count and i kind of lent on that quite heavily and i think i don't think i had the time if 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 you'd been really strict about the word count it would have taken me longer to yeah yeah to do those revisions that were 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 required And, and i and i you know i like yeah, I really enjoy those kind of constraints and and having to write to an exact word count. Mm. But in this case, the constraint was was the twelve hours, and I think that kind of yeah. lent itself to just kind of steaming ahead and not having to come back and engineer it to to, to fit a particular word count. Yeah, and that was one of the things in mind. So we we kept. I wanted like an anchoring uh, number, so somewhere in and around, because I thought if you don't give anyone any sense of a word count, then that can be a little bit, um, one might feel a little bit lost. But then I thought, so around 2,500, and then I think I said, if you go up, if you go above or below, that's fine. And mm-hmm. for those very reasons that you say, sometimes it'd be so difficult to bring something back down, and I didn't want people to have to um, be self-conscious in that way of, God, or no, is this story going... It, it's just grown too many legs now. I just mm, wanted people mm. just to be able just to follow it through and end up where you did. Um, what have you... One of the reasons... One of the exciting things for me was also the idea that the four of you, the four writers, would be given the same task and then in a way the stories would be in conversation with one another afterwards. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering kind of what's been your response to reading with other stories seeing people use the same words and come up with something very very different and is it something you see in common with all the stories or i mean again i don't i don't want to push you in in <laughs> into an answer that might not be there but yeah just your like, what's been your sense from having read them all together yeah so i was surprised the two things that surprised me um, um my big fear was that somehow there was something kind of obvious and inevitable about those five words lending themselves to a post-apocalyptic landscape and that we were all going to turn in stories about (laughs) dead fathers and, you know, Mad Max pickup trucks. 
and and <laughs> yeah. just you know we'd all be equally embarrassed about that fact. Um, so I'm glad that didn't happen. What and I was really I was really excited actually to read because to me they they read like four very different stories and they've got very different voices and different yeah. concerns and, and preoccupations. Um, but what it felt to me, and I might have been projecting, but what they felt like they all had in common was that really exciting kind of um, steaming ahead quality. You know, like, like people had, had mm. started at the beginning and just kind of set sail. I don't know if you can steam ahead on a sailing ship, but they kind of, you know, they, off they went. And <laughs> and there was this kind of like, and then this happened, and then this next thing happened. And I, yeah, I, I know I said that just now, but now this other thing is happening. And, you know, and I think, I think, um, yeah. I think Marie said that her story was based on a on a dream and and had that yeah. kind of had that definitely had that kind of dream quality where mm. where things just keep happening and there's not always a yeah. logic that follows but you just but I think all, all four stories have that energy of of kind of pushing ahead which which made them really readable you know and really mm. I know readability is not the primary mark of literary greatness but um but it helps you know and it's it's no. it's fun, fun yeah. to read um yeah that, that was the thing that really struck me and i guess the only thing that um that mildly disappointed me about the whole project was i really loved the idea i would have loved the idea that all four of us were doing it at exactly the same time and yeah and when i realized that we weren't i was slightly disappointed but that has nothing to do yeah. with what was actually written. It just that that would have been no, a very kind of beautiful yeah. thing. I remember Stephen saying the same because he he had the feeling at three in the morning that there were another three people doing exactly the same, mm. like you were in communion and in some way. Um, I should say it is my intention that that next September, kind of to mark the anniversary of Kafka. Uh, writing with judgment in one night, but I think I'd like to set something up where we ask the whole world <laughs> to write a story in a night. And I do like, and, you know, we'll make it a Friday night, uh, but that seems the best of all nights. Nice um, and we'll get that feeling of everyone is giving this a go mm. and we're all in this together. Mm. A little bit like, you know, the uh, National Writer Novel in a month. Mm-hmm. Um but I'm just kind of excited by the idea of that community, you'd say. And I'd be interested to see what comes out of it. Um, at the start, you said um, it was this was everything you told your students not to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marie had given the task to her students. And before coming on to, uh, to record this today, you and I were talking about teaching creative writing. And... Um, because we both teach creative writing. And I'm, and I'm wondering, has this commission in some way made you think differently at all about teaching or about some of the things that we talk about when we talk about yeah, writing I, I, when, when we're in the advice-giving mode? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I came out of this, I was, you know, I was really quite exhilarated after this. And had all sorts of thoughts about what it might do for my own writing practice. What would happen if other writers took this on? You know, lots of exciting ideas. And one thing I was really reflecting on was that I had tried to write like this years ago. You know, as I I said, you know, when I first started out writing, and you know, I, I, I. I wasn't a complete novice, you know, I'd, I'd had a few things published and I was working on my first novel and, you know, I, I had an agent, you know, I was, I was kind of, I had my foot on the ladder as it, as it were. Um, yeah. <laughs> and failed completely at writing in this, in this way. And, <clears throat> and then whenever I did kind of produce a chunk of writing late at night, it, it was often not very good. And and I was really, mm. okay, I'm going to be kind of hesitant and self-deprecating at this point, but I feel like this story has turned out 
pretty well. And I was, I've been surprised. Mm. I mean, I've looked back at it a few times and thinking, oh, well, or maybe at this, maybe now I'm ready to revise it. And, you know, apart from a few kind yeah. of little repetitions and things, I, I, I'm still basically happy with it. <clears throat> and and yeah. I can only think that that has happened because of 20 years of experience of, of learning how to write and that has kind of tuned up my instincts for kind of writing sentence by sentence. Mm. And that is part of how, you know, in the same way that jazz musicians can improvise once they've spent years learning how to play their instruments. And and, and I, I'd slightly worry that, okay, I have two worries. My first worry is that giving this kind of setup as an assignment to a student would um in, they they might write something terrible and and might be disheartened and put off <laughs> by that mm. experience my second worry is that that is incredibly patronizing and reductive and um uninspired mm. of me as a as a teacher so i'm really <laughs> conflicted about what to do with you know because okay so, so my initial response to this whole project when I thought it was a terrible idea, part of that response mm. is that it is it's a way of writing that ties in with a lot of the old kind of macho ideas about writing and um, mm. the kind of school of thought about writing and about creativity that says you like it exists outside of working life. You know, it's something you have to do. You have to go on retreat mm. to some cabin in the mountains. You have to have six weeks at some artist's colony. You have to, basically, you have to abandon your family and your partner and your children and your actual real-life responsibilities in service to the muse yeah. of creativity. You know, that that whole kind of school of thinking is, is still very yeah. prevalent, and I think very damaging and and excludes people with any real responsibility in the world, you know, particularly caring responsibilities. And, you know, that is still more women than men and it's still more um, Mm. working class people than middle class people. You know, it's, it's all Mm. that, that myth is part of what perpetuates middle class white male domination of, of creative arts. Mm. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm extrapolating wildly. You know, it was fun to say when I rang a story, but um, I, I, I feel like there's, there's, there's a kind of there's a there's a there's a kind of moral hazard in saying, oh, okay, this is the way to write. We all have to kind of, yeah. you know. And I know you're not suggesting that, but yeah. I, I that's my anxiety. No. <laughs> it runs alongside how excited I was yes. at working in this way and how much I enjoyed it. I, you know. Yeah. No, I I absolutely hear that. It's it's striking to me, I remember, when I first had the conversation with Danny, my idea was I just wanted someone to write a story in one sitting. Um, and the idea of the night, dusk till dawn, wasn't really on my mind. I just thought one sitting, the idea was you can't revise, you just have to write forward. And it's similar to what um, Brian Eno talks about when he's producing musicians. He says, just go start to finish. And we're not going to cut, we're not going to undo, we're not going to use the software, just see what comes out as an experiment. And then we'll take it from there. Um, but then once I had the title One Night Stand, <laughs> Danny's like, we have to do it in a night. We have to do it in a night. And I was like, I don't know if people will do it in a night. You're like, let's find out. <laughs> and we did. So in a way, I when I think of this task, for me, I think less of the night aspect of it. When Clearly, for you four who had to stay up for the night, <laughs> that's quite a, that casts quite a shadow over it, and that was a big part of the experience. I think one of the things I'm interested in is that sense of the loosening of the inhibitions and the loosening of a critical voice and um, the kind of tasks or prompts or some pushing to allow people to write with that fluency that, that you mentioned. Um, and... I don't think that needs to be staying up all night and, you know, as you say, like with a typewriter and a bottle of whiskey. But I wonder sometimes are there other ways that we can 
in teaching and in editing where we can talk about the writing process. Because so often I think in the writing process, we, we, we're really talking about the editing process. And I, it's my sense that that's easier to talk about in a way than the writing. It's things that we can, that are principles, we can talk about revision and um, work and improve, and we can talk about putting the work away for a couple of months and coming back to it and the kind of sober reflection on it. Whereas it seems a slightly more difficult and kind of away with the theories idea to be talking about inspiration and trusting intuition and all, and all these things. So I just wonder sometimes in the, in, in the pedagogy of creative writing and in the kind of public conversation that we're very, um, it's easier just to talk about the work, I suppose. And one thing, listening back to the conversation I had with the other three last time, I was struck by how quickly I fall into binary thinking, how quickly I talk about, well, is it work or is it play? As if it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas quite naturally, it's, it could be neither, it could be both, it can be 14 things, it could be the same, it could be the two at the same time. Um, and I'm just, yeah, I'm just fascinated by the kind of the values implicit in the way that we talk about writing and this odd thing that writers are so often put in the position of an advice giver either in on on panels or if they are teaching creative writing in order to (laughs) survive as a writer that they're put into this place and um, yeah, what do we what do we reach for to talk about, and what aren't we reaching for, and what aren't we talking about? Uh, I feel like I've monologued at you a little bit there, but um, yeah, those are some things on my mind with this. Yeah, I think I think what you're getting to is, I think the bit of writing that people are most interested in or confused by is the very, very first bit where you put a sentence together in your head and then you write it down on the page. And and I think most mm. of what we talk about when we talk about writing, you're, you're right, is, is, is the editing because we can find mm. the vocabulary to talk about that and we can give reasons yeah. for, you know, why this sentence works and that sentence doesn't and why we're going to cross that bit out and why we're going to get to the ending quicker, you know, whatever those things are. But that bit, you know, like I said, I, I took those five words and I put them in a sentence while I was pacing around and the kettle was boiling. And I can't, I can't tell you how I got to the sentence I did from those five words. You know, I, I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I guess I started to think, okay, buried and father. Okay, let's the father's dead. Let's bury the father. Okay, um, bed. Okay, river bed. <laughs> okay, we bury the father. But then, you know, why did I decide we we buried my father? You know, and, and I think I think the problem is that that level of thought process is just a bit mysterious. And mm. and it's difficult to articulate and it's difficult to explain. And I think most of what we do as writers is try and create the conditions under which we can come up with some sentences that we can then work with. Mm. You know, one, once you've got the words on the page, the, the work is relatively straightforward. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, for me, and I think for a lot of writers prompts and games and constraints and context is a way of, you know, it would have taken me a lot longer to come up with an opening sentence for a story while pacing around the kitchen, waiting for the kettle to boil. If I hadn't had those five words, Mm. you know, that, that Mm. because the possibilities are endless, you know, and and having those constraints really, really helps. But yeah, I think, I think most writers are, scared of trying to explain that very very initial mm. internal thought process scared because uh, it's really hard <laughs> and, and i'm not sure it's really hard and it's possibly a bit self-indulgent isn't it because I mean, you're getting right down to the nuts and bolts of mm, i don't know 
you know, some parts of who you are as a person. Is it a theory of explaining? So I'm just thinking of um, an Arthur Conan Doyle line, which is a mystery solved is a mystery spoiled. Mm. In some way that you don't want to, there might be a little bit of um, superstition around it as well, that to talk about it, maybe to talk it away. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely that. I mean, and I think there's a lot of that in thinking about writing, talking about writing overall. There's also there's also an element of reservation in that it just feels a bit self indulgent to kind of talk about your own process <laughs> so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I've invited you to I've invited <laughs> you to do that today, so I hope you don't. <laughs> I hope you don't feel you've indulged scrub too my, much. I've got to scrub myself clean. <laughs> uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you uh, it, uh, today, John. Uh, thank you very much for your time and for um, yeah, and for taking on the commission in the first place and for delivering such a wonderful story. Thank you. It's been uh, genuinely been a pleasure. So there we are. Um, you can read John's story and all the others in issue 45 of The Sting and Fly, which is available from the best bookshops and also our website. In the meantime, I'd like to thank the Arts Council, who support everything we do at The Sting and Fly. I'd like to thank Ian Mullaney, the producer of our podcast. And I'd like to thank all our lis- listeners. At this point, I'm obliged to say, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please do subscribe to all the usual channels. That's it for now, so thanks once again to John McGregor and all the writers who forsook a night's sleep to write us a story. We'll catch you again next time.